Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. With me, as always, is Mr. Mustache, Cullen McFader. Yeah, that's what they call me now. <laughs> How are you doing, man? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. And I, of course, am Clark Coffee. And today, on episode 46... Wow, I can't believe it's 46. I know. We Almost are at going... 50. What? Almost at 50. We're going to have to think of something special to do for yeah. 50, man. We'll have to, we're will have going to have to put our heads together and think of something. 50th yeah. anniversary. That's a big one. Um, but uh, we are covering Martin Scorsese's 1986 film, The Color of Money, mm-hmm. starring Paul Newman, Tom Cruise... You've got Forrest Whitaker's in there. You've got who else do we have? I mean, this film's packed with great, um, with great performances. But mm-hmm. I'm excited to get into this with you. This is a film, you know. It's definitely. I mean, look, Scorsese's made a million great films. This one often kind of uh, is a little on the, you know, stays a little on the down low. You know, yeah, it's a little lower yeah. profile. Um, but I think it's an outstanding film, and I think yeah, it's kind of it. an interesting yeah. film for a handful of reasons. So uh, I'm excited to discuss it with you today. So like right off the bat, let's jump into one of my favorite uh, parts of our discussion, our personal experience with the film. Yeah. And as I understand it, you've not seen the film before. No, I'd, I'd seen The Hustler, which of course is a sequel to um, right? years so, ago. Okay, and I, so, I don't really recall The Hustler all that well, but... right. Um, but yeah, this was the first time I'd seen this one. Um, okay. What did you think? I, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I'm I'm a big, you know, as everyone is, I'm a, I really like Scorsese, and I think that he's, you know, a really masterful director, um, an interesting director for me because I don't, I I I have limited influence from him. Okay. Um, you know, like I don't I don't really set out to make movies like him in in a weird way, but I mm-hmm. I love him, and it's like he, yeah, I think he's really really an interesting director. I guess my my intonations are are different, but um, but no, I thought this was a it was a it's very fun. Um, it's it's for the most part I'd say a lighthearted movie, and and mm. um, but it also you know there's there's some you know pretty pretty heavy drama stuff in there, and and you know you get the I love Newman. Newman's my favorite actor as well, or at least definitely one of um, yeah yeah. And so I think that his performances were, or his performance was amazing. You got Tom Cruise coming off of Top Gun, which... Which um, hadn't been released yet, though. Yeah, hadn't even been released. So this he, is, that's yeah. one of the things that makes this film interesting, is that this is Tom Cruise before he really turned into international into superstar Tom Cruise. Yeah, Tom Cruise. Yes. yeah exactly. Because yeah. he'd done, what, he, he was in The Outsiders... Well, he was in The Outsiders. Um, uh, he was in Risky Business. And, Risky Business, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was probably because of his performance in Risky Business that he was cast in this film. Uh, don't want to speak out of turn. That's what's kind mm-hmm. of popping into my head right now. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a safe bet. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're looking at it's 1986. You know, uh, if you look into Tom Cruise's filmography... He had done not a ton. He'd done a handful of films, but like you're correct, he'd done Outsiders, Risky. I mean, he had, I think, four films come out in 83, if I'm not mistaken. And, Mm -hmm. you know, of those, certainly Risky Business was by far and away the largest film. And he had done, I think, an 85 legend, Ridley Scott's film. Mm -hmm. And that was not a big hit at all. I I don't even think it made its budget back. uh, I mean, yeah, he was by no means unknown but no he wasn't, not unknown he but wasn't not the, yeah. the international superstar 
right it was kind of i think top gun sort of top gun yeah and you're talking there about a film you know of course that's tony scott so it's interesting Cruz worked with uh, both brothers tony and ridley uh by this point but yeah i mean look we all know top gun when top gun was was released i think that was ish 15 million and that thing pulled in over 350 million in the box Mm -hmm. office it was you know a cultural phenomenon i love it too and then that top gun fan (laughs) yeah yeah it's great and then that you know and then he really sailed now it's interesting like right after that in 88 he did cocktail which is Mm -hmm. hysterical (laughs) and i and i actually not that we're gonna make this episode we're not gonna make this episode about tom cruise but but it's fun to find context for the film you know for color of money um and then of course tom went on to be tom and you know did that whole thing yeah i mean first things first yeah i mean i i i I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I can't, we'll get into the specifics of course, but I, I, um, wasn't surprised. I mean, I think most of the time I, I wind up liking Scorsese movies, but I I think that I, what, what really took me on this one was that, and again, we'll get into this much more when we're talking about the direction and stuff like that. But I thought that it was, it was an interestingly subdued Scorsese for the first half Uh and then really became more of a Scorsese, like, you like know, stylistically, montage, stylistic, you lots mean, of dollying, yeah. zooms, yeah, a lot of energy, like yeah, a yeah. lot of energy, very, very kinetic in the second half, kinetic, not that yeah. I, again, I can't even say I prefer one over the other, because one of my favorite Scorsese movies is Silence, which mm-hmm. has none of that kinetic stuff, yes, like, it's totally, it's yeah. very, very subdued, um, but no, I, I really, uh, was, was impressed by the movie, um, on a technical and, you know, just as a storytelling, yeah, um, now, know, now I'm curious, like, what would you consider, like, you know, some people think this is kind of like a sports, like it's in the sport genre, you know. It, you also have elements, not necessarily like a con film, but but hustlers are kind of con men, right? So mm-hmm. there's they're like legal of, con men in a way. Yeah, there's kind of like the, the, you know, is this like a con artist film? Is it a sports film? Is it mm-hmm. is it a mentorship kind of mentor mentee film? There's elements of all of these things. Did you have any expectations at all about the film going into it? I mean, you know, it's it's no, I I again, I hadn't seen the hustler in so long. That okay, I didn't really, you and know, it's. And it's not a film of Scorsese's backlog or, you know, filmography that, that, that I think really stands out much, which is why I wanted to pick it, because I don't mm-hmm. think it, it doesn't, it's a, it kind of lays low. And mm-hmm. I think it could be easily overlooked. And I think actually in a lot of ways it has been, including with its transfer, but we're going to get to that as well uh, yeah. later. But, uh, well, for me, you know, this film came out in 86. I was 10 years old when it was released. I certainly had not seen The Hustler. By you know when this film came out mm-hmm. at, at ten years old, I I wasn't given to watching you know nineteen sixty early sixties black and white films. I don't think it probably wouldn't have caught my attention. Um, but I didn't see the film probably until you know it came out on cable, like a lot of these eighties films. And if you guys have been listening to this podcast for a while, I just realized it seems like a lot of my picks are films that came out in the mid eighties. Clearly, this was an, uh, a time frame for me where... A formative uh, time frame. A formative, <laughs> formative time frame. But, you know, I probably saw this film, you know, three, four-ish years later. Uh, so I remember watching it, I think, either like late junior high or high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, so I, Tom Cruise would have probably been the person that would have stood out to me most. I don't know how many Newman films I had seen. I certainly, of course, knew of Newman. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, it. The I think as a kid, it was probably you know the the way Scorsese shoots with such confidence. These characters are cool, right? I mean, Newman is super cool in his own way. 
uh, Cruz is, although a hothead, <laughs> uh, goofy. Although goofy, yeah. you know, to a to yeah. a twelve year old kid or whatever I was, you know, he came off as like being super cool, you know. And you've got the, you know, the the pool sharks, and you've got this amazing pool photography, you know, and the music and everything, very like a kinetic film. So I remember very much loving it. And then as I got older. I got I started to get more interested in the relationship between Newman and Cruz and this whole kind of, you know, uh, dynamic of hustlers and con artists and mentorship relationships. uh, And Mm -hmm. that became like very intriguing to me. And, you know, what is winning? What is losing? Um, and, And I think it's an interesting kind of metaphor here for for a lot of us, unfortunately, as we go through life where, you know, we kind of start off wanting to do whatever it is we end up doing in life because we have a passion for it. Ho- yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. And yes, and that yeah. kind of becomes corrupt over time. We do things for money. And, you know, this is kind of part of the necessity of life, right? I mean, we have to pay our bills. Most of us, we have to earn an income and so that we have a roof and food. Um, and so, you know, this passion can come be, could kind of become corrupted. Um, and then a lot of our life might be spent trying to find that passion and love again for what we originally, you know, uh, wanted to do. And I certainly have had experiences like this uh, in the film industry. So mm-hmm. now, many, many years later, as an older adult uh, with a lot more experience under my belt, I see this film even in a totally new way. So... One of the kind of signs of a good film to me is that it can grow with its audience over time. And I feel like this film really has, at least for Mm -hmm. me. So definitely. Yeah. So, uh, okay, cool. Well, I'll be interested to see, you know, so we have I have a history with the film. You don't have a history with the film. So it'll be interesting Mm -hmm. as we kind of go through certain aspects of the film. We'll kind of compare notes. It'll be interesting to have a couple different perspectives. So I think we talked a little bit about context for the film. And we'll expand on that a little bit because I think it's important. It kind of educates a lot of the other ways that you can look at the film. I mean, it is a sequel, like you said, uh, to The Hustler. And The Hustler, uh, I actually did watch it again. And I uh, hadn't seen it for maybe about a decade. So I watched it right before I watched The Color of Money this time. And Hustler is 1961. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's Newman. Uh, Gleason plays Minnesota Fats, who is, uh, I guess, uh, basically the kind of Newman's arch rival, Fast Eddie Felsen. That's Newman's yes. character in both yeah. of these films, by the way. Gotta love that name, Fast Eddie and Minnesota Fats. Those are great names. <laughs> but um, but in that film, Newman is almost kind of, in a way, in the Tom Cruise role in Color of Money. He's yeah, he the, just he's wants the, to kind of play. He's and, the, yeah, and, yeah, he's the he's the younger pool player. He's in it to be the best you know he has a passion for pool the money is not as important he just wants to be the best he seeks out minnesota fats who's notorious to be you know as the the best pool hustler in the land and ultimately he ends up being beat Mm -hmm. and we go through this and it's interesting because the hustler is actually very much a love story in a sense i mean there's not actually a ton of pool if you really look at the film a lot of the film is spent uh, with the relationship between uh fast eddie and Piper Laurie's character and their relationship. She's an alcoholic, and but but she sees, even though she has struggles with her own issues with alcoholism, and she's kind of you know this abandoned character in a sense. She sees how he's being corrupted 
yeah. by by yeah, yeah. by George C. C. Scott. She's character. very much almost like a third eye in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, yeah. And and she kind of sees that his passion for the game and his desire to just be pure and be the best is being corrupted by yeah. uh, by these other characters' desire for money and. You know, uh, and they, they don't really have a passion. They're just kind of using him. He's a pawn. He's, you know, these people are bored, kind of cynical, corrupt characters. And he's fallen into this world with them. And, mm-hmm. and of course, by the end of the film, that's exactly what happens. I mean, he does beat Minnesota Fats, but he's kind of run out of the game. And he has got the, through, you know, through the course of the film, he's kind of uh, become one of them in effect. And so that's yes. where we find him at the start of this film. Um, and, and He we owns kind like of, a bar. He's a liquor salesman, too. He's kind of... Yeah, well, and, and it's interesting to note, he, he's, selling, he's selling like uh, generic liquor and fake mm-hmm. labels so that people... Yeah. So that's that, one of the first quick lines. It's like, can you get me some Jack Daniels labels or yeah, something? So or, he's yeah, a, so he's a con artist and kind of a yeah. hustler in every sense of the word. I mean... Um, but it's interesting to note, too, you know, that, that in 86, when this film came out, Scorsese, who definitely, of course, had a reputation at this point, uh, he had shot several films, but some of the biggest being Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull, of course, extremely critically successful films. But he had had a run of a couple films after that that weren't very successful. He did King of Comedy in 82. He did After Hours in 85. And although I, I personally think these are great films, and I think most people have come around to agree with that sentiment, uh, at the time, they were really disappointing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, they didn't do well at all. Didn't do well at all. And so here we have Newman actually coming to Scorsese saying, I'd like you to direct this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book, uh, the author of um, of uh, The Hustler, uh, had just written two years prior in 84, this book, The Color of Money, and Newman was looking to reprise his role as Fast Eddie Felsen, so he comes to Scorsese and hires him basically to do this job. So it's, in a sense, this is, you know, Newman had probably more to do with this film being put together than Scorsese, and it's interesting mm-hmm. I, and I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to be careful. I'm not sure if this is 100% fact, but I, I get kind of a sense that Scorsese almost doesn't see this as like really one of his films, that he almost mm-hmm. kind of sees himself as a gun for hire. Yeah, yeah. Film. I mean, I can understand that too, that it's yeah. like, you know, it probably wasn't something that he had been thinking about for a long time. I right. know, I think, I think Last Temptation of the Christ had actually just been canned by one of the studios that they were gonna do it and then so he was really kind of down yeah but the fact that that wasn't made which was clearly a passionate um, project for him exactly yeah. so and I, but i can ex- i can totally understand you know i've i've done things that i've directed um that i haven't written or really been involved in much of the pre-production on where i've just sort of come in to yeah. direct and, and of course made those decisions but i don't really see those as, as things that i you know, it proudly show off as my own either. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's much more of something that I'm kind of like, oh yeah, it was it was much more of a job. And like you said, kind of a hired gun. So I can totally understand why Scorsese wouldn't wouldn't necessarily consider this in his like if you get a Scorsese bat box set that he himself curated, I could see him leaving this one out. Yeah, I um, think so. But that doesn't speak to its quality at all. I would say that this, you know, again, I no, think agree. both of us really, really liked this movie. Yeah. Um, but more so that I just understand that, you know, with Scorsese it wasn't it wasn't his. It wasn't like yeah, you know, he had been dreaming. He didn't about originate. For... He didn't originate the story. Yeah, it's yeah. a sequel. Obviously, we mm-hmm. don't have we don't have Scorsese shooting sequels at any other point in his you know filmography. So, 
So yeah, and it's interesting too. Um, you know, Tom Cruise, like we said before, uh, Tom Cruise certainly was a name, and he was clearly a, a rising star. But mm-hmm. Top Gun had not released, and so he wasn't, you know, the Tom Cruise we all know and love. And I think it's great because here you see Tom Cruise let it really, I think, letting it all out. He really goes for it. He's over the top in a lot of ways, and I mean that in the the best of senses. You know, his the werewolf of London scene where he's slaying his opponents. I mean, he really goes for it. And he's, you know, he's just, he's he's a total goof. He's a total flake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you just, you don't see this, you don't see him uh, taking on roles like this really ever again in his filmography. No, I mean, where he's su- kind of almost, not an antagonist, but he's not, um, he, there's not really not any the redemption for him. He doesn't, he doesn't like come out of it being like, oh, yeah, you know, Cruz. I loved his character. He was you know, not that you know he's a great character, but not in a good person yeah. sense. Um, yeah, it's also interesting to and note, and it's not his movie. It's yeah. Fast Eddie Felsen's yes. movie, and so yeah. you don't see Tom Cruise with rare exception. I mean, you have his kind of big cameo, I guess you might call it, in Magnolia, but you yeah. don't see Tom Cruise really. You don't see him playing second fiddle. You don't also. I mean, it's the thing is, it's interesting actually about kind of I think the the structure of the movie is that you think starting off that it is going to be that 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 tom cruise is going to be the, the main character and that it's going to sort of be like a handoff movie yeah. where it's like you get the old you know master handing it off to the <laughs> right. new young gun but it, it really goes back into a movie about felson you know yeah uh, and so i think i think what's also interesting is that um uh walter tevis wrote a screenplay for it that was rejected um, ah. that apparently is is it was quite different and so well uh, and let's I, let's I'd add a note real quick here so walter yeah. tevis wrote yes. the hustler the novel and yeah. he also wrote the color of money the novel and just as a quick little piece of trivia he also wrote the queen's gambit which is a, a recent netflix miniseries that was very very successful mm-hmm. but okay so that's interesting so go back to that so so tevis did write an original screenplay that was rejected you said yeah, so he yeah, okay. so apparently they decided not to use it. Um and so then it was written by Richard Price. Um so who was nominated for an Academy Award for this film by the way. Yeah, and I, so I wonder I've never read the the novel either of them. Mm-hmm. I've never read The Hustler or Color of Money by uh, Walter Tevis, but I'd be I curious either. if like how similar they are because apparently the novel wasn't written necessarily to be a sequel. Um mm. that it was written to be sort of a a separate story so i'd be curious to know um if that means you know because it's so vague it could just mean that it was written to center around perhaps cruz's character in the novel as well or it could mean that it did like the novel may have had little to do with um you know eddie and it, and it could and this film is totally could be standalone i mean i would assume oh, totally. that the yeah. vast yeah, yeah. vast vast majority of the people who saw this film in 86 did not see the hustler in 61 i mean you know you're talking about a 25-year time span divide Mm -hmm. between the two films. So, you know, this film totally stands on its own. I think there's some added texture. There's some added depth if you have seen The Hustler. And And if you watch them back-to-back even, yeah. If you watch them back-to-back, you really see that there are some ties ties, uh, into each other in some really nice, subtle ways. Almost like a longer narrative arc. But yeah, there you go. It's a longer narrative arc because you actually, you you know, if you kind of think of it, we come into Eddie Falson Newman's character here. It's actually kind of in the middle of his arc. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at both films together, um, 
So it does add a lot. And just cool little tiny callbacks. Um, there's a handful of lines where they talk about character being the most important aspect of being a good player uh, in The Hustler. We have some fun callbacks here to character. Uh, Helen Shaver's uh, character here, his love interest, um, talks about character. So there's, there's just a handful of little callbacks that are actually pay off quite nicely if you've seen and remember The Hustler. It's but also course, funny. You don't have I, to. Yeah, I hadn't seen, as I said, The Hustler for maybe six or seven years. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, one thing that I really appreciate, and this is, you know, owes to, to Paul Newman so much as well, is that he really does a good job of playing a matured version of the character from The Hustler, right? Like that he, he comes into this movie and you don't feel like it's just the same guy. You oh, really gosh, feel like yeah. that, that 25 years have gone by and that he's a different person. Oh, that you he's really had feel experiences. It. And, and so I, but there's still, he does such a good job also though of getting back into that role and making you believe that this is the same character, but 25 years later. I mean, because I think that's a huge thing, especially today yeah. now that we're getting all of these sequels that come out, you know, like, the new Star Wars movies or Ghostbusters or, you know, mm. whatever, you name it. There's, mm. there's a ton of coming out every week yeah. um, where it's like, you know, 25 years have gone by since the last one. And I think the issue with a lot of those movies nowadays is that I don't know if it's a director's thing or if it's a studio that are kind of like, we need people to remember. It's all about nostalgia. And so they try to almost get the actors who are playing these characters 25 years on to play the exact same character, <laughs> they, like to yeah, play they, the character that they were 25 years ago. And between it's the Botox is, and the Photoshop, yes, it's like they yeah. look identical. <laughs> and so yeah. I think that it's really interesting that, and perhaps it's it's maybe a kind of a, a, a touch of the era that there wasn't really a huge like this. You know, we have such a nostalgia wave now, whereas yeah. that wasn't really much, as far as I'm aware, when this film came out. So there wasn't this whole like we're recreating the magic of the first movie where, you know, it's, yeah. it's Paul Newman back as Eddie. It's, it's, you know, it's yeah. much more a continuation. And it feels like, again, like you said, it can stand on its own. It's a separate film. It has its own, you know, it has its own arc, even though it can be involved in the arc of um, the larger, you know, duo of the films. Yeah. Um, but it does, you know, watching this movie on its own, I had no issue getting into it, enjoying it, connecting with characters and things like that. Um, and again, that goes with saying that I have seen The Hustler, but it's been so long that, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely not a movie that's fresh on my mind by right. any means. And that's the way almost everybody would have come into this picture. Yes. Yeah, with that not being yeah. fresh. I think, you know, it, we get to performances in a little more detail, but since you spoke about Newman and, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll just add this little tidbit while we're here. I mean, you know, Newman, uh, look, he's, he's one of your favorite actors. He's one of my favorite actors. I, 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 by all accounts, he was an extraordinary human being, period. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he just does such an outstanding job of, of, you know, conveying the life that would have been led between, you know, the end of the last film and the beginning of this film, mm -hmm. the age that's on him. Now, a lot of this, the writing is great and the direction is great, the way he's introduced. And I mean, it's, he well, does it's such a brilliant introduction. It's such does, a good introduction. He does yeah. such a fantastic job of of carrying his age and the weight of so much life, but still he's, he, there's this vitality, this sharpness to him, this edge mm -hmm. to him that it's like, he, he almost is like youthful, 
without having to put on any of these pretenses of being youthful in a certain sense. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and I think a huge part of that cool. too is the, how how he's almost introduced alongside John Turturro's character, oh, who, yeah. by the way, I think is like a criminally underrated actor. Every single time, yeah, I see John Turturro in something, he's fantastic. He's you know he was also in To Live and Die in L.A. Ex- he was fantastic except for that, in that. Except for that. Um, Oh man, the Cohen brothers, Big Lebowski. It's except for the Big Lebowski uh, <laughs> spinoff. I mean, come on. That, oh God, yes, yeah, the the, the spinoff. Jesus, yeah, yeah, roles or something. Oh, um, okay. but no, but he's, but he, you know, when in the movies that he's he's good in, he's good in. I guess is a an easier way to put it. But no, <laughs> I, I think that he's like even in this, he's got maybe two or three scenes, and he stands yeah. out in every single one where he he just plays, um, this guy that's just filled with jealousy, but almost. You know, he's played right on the cusp of comic relief where yeah. he's not just a joke, um, but he's also very much something that is like, you know, you're meant to get a, a few laughs out of his scenes, how, how he, yeah, um, you know, he tells Paul Newman as he leaves, he's like, you suck, and you suck, <laughs> and you almost expect, you know, again, going into the movie, you expect, if this had the trajectory of a typical sports movie, it would be Newman training Cruz, and then the end, the big finale, the showdown would be Taturo versus Cruz, and Newman would be on the ah, sidelines, you know. Yeah. He'd, but he'd have to coach uh, Cruz through Taturo, who was his old kind of, it would be like Karate Kid. Um, but no, it completely, you know, yeah, he, yeah, just, yeah. he just beats Taturo at the end. Which were huge in, films in, in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You know, these kind of, you have a lot of these sports films where that's, you know, that would absolutely be what you would expect from the story. Well, let's... Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the story a little bit in the directing. I mean, you had mentioned that one of the things that stood out to you uh, really um, predominantly was this kind of that you have almost a two different Scorseses. You've got yes. this, this yeah. kind of subdued or, you know, kind of more traditional kind of standard way that the first half of the film is shot. And then mm-hmm. we go, you know, full Scorsese, as I think. Really kinetic it, you know, camera, got, really, yeah. And yeah. it kind of starts with with Newman's montage where he's getting mm-hmm. back into shape. He's getting his prescription glasses. He's swimming, you know, he's practicing. And we get a lot more uh, action. This becomes really kinetic. And, you know, the music is amped up. And we've got the quick dollies and the... And that he almost abandons the hustler lifestyle, you know, this whole... It's, it, you really... Yeah, and I think it's, it's super... Because, again, um, this is, of course, after uh, King of Comedy, which was 1982, which, as you said, didn't do super well. King of Comedy is another one that I think is very subdued Scorsese. Very, you know, there's not those big montage stylistically dollies, is what you're, you're kind of talking about, like the kinetics... The, yes, the, the kinetics of the, the camera. camera you, and, yeah. yeah, just to be clear, yeah. Um, and, and so it's interesting, yeah, that this movie is, is you get both of those. Um, and I think it works super well in context of the story as well. Like, it, it works in favor of the, the way that this movie is laid out. Yeah. And the way that the, you know, that everything kind of comes to be. You feel, I think it's such a brilliant decision because it's like you get this, this subdued Scorsese and, you know, Eddie is not in his own. And then suddenly, as soon as he clicks on it, then you you get this this kinetic Scorsese, that, that the things that Scorsese is really famous for. And it's like, it's like you feel this sudden return to craft not that the first half is by any means poorly directed. I actually, again, as I said, love subdued Scorsese. But you, mm-hmm. you, I think the fact that he chose to do that, the fact mm-hmm. that he chose to direct the first half much more low energy um, and just sort of a little bit more objective in terms of how he places the camera and, and, and shoots the scenes, 
yeah. um, that as soon as you get the subjectivity, you feel like you're back in with Eddie. Like you almost feel this this revitalization of well, energy that's that's yeah. washed over him it's, and the audience. It's yeah, it's certainly helpful. I mean, it, it escalates the energy of the film. It brings us to a climax with you know this head of steam. Um, mm-hmm. it, it gives the film a dynamic feeling where it's you know you really have this kind of elevation. It assists the story in that way, absolutely. And it's a good example of you know how how the camera can be used to you know not just in a utilitarian sense where you know you're showing what's happening and da 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 but that it actually you know you can you, the the style with which you use the camera can actually shift as we go through the acts of a film and mm-hmm. can actually really uh lend weight behind the the beats of the story that you're trying to convey you know exactly um, it's a really it's like it's a, a master class in using a director's style i think yeah that rarely is seen in, in you know even even a lot of movies that were contemporary with this that that where it's like of course every director you think of like tourship and things like that um that a lot of directors have a fingerprint on a movie where you mm-hmm. can tell that they're those are their you know their stylistic choices that they use all the time and that really makes them them um but i think scorsese in this one uses it in a really special way that that like elevates a lot of the picture so i think it's really interesting yeah yeah and it, and it's beautiful to watch i mean there's just you know there's so uh i mean i think you know from the get-go the the camera is actually if you if you pay attention to it because some of the stuff is hard to shoot you've got you know uh people around a table you've got action on the table you've got people moving around a table the camera does such a fantastic job of you know f- fluidly you know, showing us people playing pool around a table, showing the action on the table, keeping mm-hmm. us like spatially aligned. It doesn't ever feel weird. You don't ever get spatially confused. It always is. You understand of, the game immediately because they're not necessarily playing pool. You, they're playing nine um, ball, nine ball. Yeah. And you get right. And so and you're they're correct. It's like they do kind of explain nine ball a little bit. And there's some narration in the beginning. It's by Scorsese himself. By Scorsese himself yeah. that does kind of like lay a little bit of groundwork so that you, as an audience, you kind of understand what's happening on the pool table. Um, but it, exactly. I mean, it's it's because you're having to deal with not just the spatial orientation and the power relationships between the players playing and the drama there. But you also have to keep this, the spatial nature of the game on the table. Mm-hmm. clear and that's tough you know the hustler yeah. didn't show much pool it's interesting if you watch the hustler i mean very 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 little pool is shown there's only a handful of shots this film shows a lot of pool and mm-hmm. uh and that i mean i that's got to be really challenging and then thelma shoemaker's editing is just really superb when it always comes and always to showing those sequences as well like the, the absolutely the pool and um Again, you just you have this fluidity, um, especially in the second half, where th- and that's what I love about Scorsese is that that he has this way of making his scenes flow from scene to scene, in a in a montage sense, but not in a a typical you know Rocky Four. He's he's training on the farm, <laughs> the training way. montage. Exactly, you've got this. It 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 fits so well within the movie that doesn't it doesn't feel like it's it's a scene. It feels like it's just like you're just evolving with these characters. So it's yeah, I think the direction, the editing is is all really, really superb, and, and I think honestly, some of Scorsese's best, and which is a shame that so many people have probably missed this movie or, or don't really think of it as one of Scorsese's best. Yeah, um, because it really, you know, it, it it's a masterclass in in all of his work. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's, it's visually just really interesting to see. And you've got some, you know, really classic shots here. Maybe one of the most kind of famous is the the reflection of Newman uh, mm-hmm, in the, mm-hmm. I, gosh, and now I'm, I can't remember, remember if it's an eight ball or if it's a, I can't remember which ball, but it's, um, uh, and it's probably important to the story, but, you know, we see him as he leans in to, to begin to play and you have this like really beautiful reflection of him uh, in the in the in the ball, uh, there's just a hand that the, the sh- there's a really beautiful shot where he walks into the near the end at the tournament, and mm-hmm. you've got these pool tables laid out, and we've got this like organ music, and and you know kind of knowing Scorsese and how important re- uh, religion is and as a theme in a lot of his movies, you know this like organ music comes on and it's like you know this is Fast Eddie's church man, yeah. you know like he's entered church baby. Um, and the, just so many really beautiful shots like that. And again, I've just, I'm honestly, I've kind of like practically taken notes, you know, uh, just how well the camera moves around the table. And mm-hmm. cause so, I, I, you know, sometimes it's a challenge. I mean, you know, it's almost like, uh, when you've got people sitting around a table, you know, and it, it seems like it'd be one of the easiest shots to, you know, s- scenes to shoot, but you've got a handful of people around a table and they're having a conversation it's like to keep it interesting to too, keep it dramatic is, and yeah. to keep it spatially clean. Uh, it can be surprisingly challenging. And so now imagine that you've got people around a table, but they're moving around the table and what they're doing on the table is actually important and you need mm-hmm. to show it, you know? Uh, so it, it's, I, I think it's a good, you know, learning experience for, for anybody out there, you know, take a look at how these are shot. They're great. So it's not just mm-hmm. those, those really bombastic stylistic shots that are, worth checking out um and let, i mean let's talk about the, the cinematography a little bit more too michael ballas well, what's it, I, yeah i mean i think first off there's a lot of natural light because rather than shooting on big sets mm-hmm. um a lot of the scenes actually took place in real pool halls yes these are um, definitely on location at least as i understand it i think yeah pretty much the and, whole film was shot on location right yeah and it's michael Bauhaus who of yep. course is um you know somebody who Scorsese would go on to this is the second movie together, but yep, they did after hours. Go on to work with first. on everything until the departed. Yep, um, and I think that it's a really, really again, much like the direction uh, of at least the first half of the film. Nothing crazy, but very, very beautiful. You know, it's lit very, very well balanced. Um, everything has got this really soft again because you've got. I wish I. Just I wish I could have been able to tell. Right, yeah. I wish I could have. I'm like so. I, I. It is so hard for me to tell in some instances what was meant and what was not. So just mm-hmm. a small digression here. So I have this film on both Blu-ray and then, and I have an iTunes digital copy. I watched it on iTunes, but it didn't matter because both of the transfers are identical. They are horrible. Mm-hmm. It. I. This is. And I have, I, I, I mean, I don't even, I couldn't even count how many films I've seen on Blu-ray and, you know, HD uh, digitally. This is, I think I can safely say, the worst transfer of a major feature film I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at, at many, many places, consistently, the HD 1080p transfer of this film looked looked like an early dvd release yeah at best mm-hmm. it was it was so so soft uh, and not not appropriately soft um like it was yeah it was just muted, a horrible print yeah, yeah just a horrible bit rate uh a lot of data missing 
banding, artifacting, green looked horrible, uh, the colors muted, washed out, um, just horrible, man. Mm-hmm. I, but you said that you saw this and it looked good. My yeah, whatever transfer I saw was actually quite nice. The colors were balanced. Um, it was it was sharp. Um, that was kind of how I knew that you would likely seen a different one than I had because it was it was yeah. your you were saying it was soft and mine they was just, actually yeah quite they saved the good sharp. stuff for Canadians, man. We just don't Apparently. get access to that out here <laughs> down here in the U.S. Man, I'm gonna have to start like you know importing my films from Canada, dude. But the um, yeah, but I was gonna say too that it's one of those movies that you just have a naturally nice, you know, lighting situation where where pool tables always have the light above them, so you've got immediately you have contextual lighting, practical lighting in a scene mm-hmm. that looks neat, that looks cool. You yeah. Know, if you've ever stood at a pool table in a bar or a pool hall with anybody, you know that everything kind of looks dramatic because you got the top-down light yeah. right from the pool table, then a soft light bouncing up from the table itself, of course, from the, the above light that's bouncing off of the, the fabric. Yeah. So yeah. you just naturally have these really nice practicals, and I think that they use that to their advantage a lot, where there's nothing super fancy going on other than that. You know, every mm-hmm. every light is just sort of accentuating the natural, you know, what would look natural in a pool hall. There's no crazy, you know, it's not super hazed. It's not like you've got big bars of light coming in through the windows and things like that. There's there's It doesn't look really, really ultra-stylized. Which is um, which is interesting because yeah. you know if if you call this a sports movie, which you know you can make an argument, this is a sports yeah. movie in some it's sense. It's classified. Right? I think I most mean, things put it, sports in its genre couldn't be further from different. I mean, in many ways, but but we're talking about the cinematography than Scorsese's other yes sports film, Raging Bull. I mean, yes. you couldn't, yeah. you, which was shot by Michael Chapman. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't find two films that look more different than these two films from, you know, cinematography perspective. So it's interesting, the, the like, radical uh, differences with which uh, Scorsese approached both of these sports films. Mm-hmm. And they're not that far apart. We've got, what, six years apart between the two. So yeah. I just, yeah. it's just interesting. And No, it's, it's definitely, a, a, it's, it's, I mean, not weird. Weird's not the right word for it, but it's, it's, it shows the range, I think. And, and also, it's kind of, again, an interesting little look at, at how a cinematographer might affect the look of a film and affect mm-hmm. a director's direction. Um, in that, again, yeah, I think I love Michael Balhas. I, lo- I think that he's done some really, really brilliant work on, on all the Scorsese movies that he, he shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say, yeah, this one was, is interestingly natural. That the lighting is very much. Um, it's, it's practical in a sense. Like everything is influenced by the practicals. Everything is sourced from whatever the practical elements of the scene are, which of course, you know, in cinematography, most things are, but there's no accentuation on a, on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. You're not getting no these, obvious like, style smoke filled. Exactly. Exactly. But there's I do color weird, you know, one of the things that I feel anything. like they did a really great job with is like, I, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is this, this feeling of, I get like an East Coast vibe, almost from a lot of it. I get kind of an mm-hmm. East Coast vibe. I get a cold vibe. You know, it's like mm, I, I tungsten. Think, yeah, and I get it's 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 just uh, that stuck out, that stood out to me. Uh, I think it was effective. Yeah, I mean, you get just it looks cold. It feels cold. Um, it's it's kind of gritty. Uh, in mm-hmm. that way, it feels quite gritty to me. And it you also pe- you don't really know. I think that that also adds to it that you don't really know how long the film takes place over, 
because it mm-hmm. seems to go through mm. at least like two or three seasons. Like there's yeah. a, a scene in winter, fall, and I believe there it comes around the ending where it's almost like summer. Well, and you don't so, know, and they're they're in different states, they're traveling. Yeah. So you don't yeah. know if you know are the seasons changing? Is time passing? Is it that that they're going from state to state? And you know yeah. the yeah. the tournaments in Vegas and before they were in Philly or whatever, you know wherever they were. Uh, I don't recall exactly Chicago, whatever, you know, so Atlantic city. Yeah. Yeah. Atlantic city. So, um, but I do get a sense that it, you know, it kind of helps convey the way it shot helps convey this, like, you know, a sense of kind of disorientation that a person would experience if you live on the road and you're going, yeah, from if you're suddenly to swept season, up in this. Yeah. or, you know, kind of this, this kind of gritty and a lot of this is locations that they pick, but the, this kind of, I mean, it's not very glamorous, right? They're playing no. pool in bars in you in know, like in pool Chicago. Halls, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's and they do a great job of conveying that. They I stop mean, to to ask directions to one for some guys standing around a, a, a you know a fire pit, like standing <laughs> below it, you know, a burning dumpster and it's a bur- like, yeah, yeah, like you know. a barrel, like a bur- yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, a lot of times they're it's funny too. Now there is inflation, but you know they're playing for like twenty bucks, fifty bucks a hand. Now of course yeah. it does elevate, and they start playing for five hundred bucks a hand or a thousand bucks a hand. But I mean, you know, it, it's it's almost in a sense it's like there's some humor to this too, where it's like in their world this is like the most serious thing ever. Mm-hmm. Especially to, for Newman, but to an outsider, it's like, I mean, you're you're playing a game for like fifty bucks, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. a little bit. There's a little bit of that, you know, uh, which I which I kind of find is funny. Yeah, um, I, I like that Newman's like, you know, that if you, you, you screw this up, then no one's gonna play you here to like Atlantic City. You know, you'll your name will go through uh, like beer hall or pool hall to pool hall, and yeah, you'll yeah, get another yeah. game for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know? Which is it's funny to th- I mean, I love films that are about this kind of like these subcultures that you know i don't have any uh exposure to and that that seem like interesting and fun you know Mm -hmm. um but i let's talk a little bit more about the performances because there there really are a handful of outstanding performances we've talked a little bit about newman's you know he was actually uh won an academy award for this film now yes i mean i uh, think and a a few other people are nominated uh mary Mary elizabeth uh uh-huh. She was nominated. Um, Richard Price, Boris Levin, and Karen O'Hara for art direction. Um, they were all nominated for the Oscar. So there so. were a handful of nominations, yeah, and a couple for performances. And Newman, you know, I think uh, some people felt that Newman's award was kind of a makeup award. Yeah, now, yeah. I think Newman's performance is outstanding in this film, and I don't yes. see, I, I don't recall off the top of my head exactly what performances he was up against in 86, but... I think that the performance is outstanding. I think it stands as one of his better performances in a filmography of outstanding performances. So I don't personally have a problem with it, but I do understand. The other, yeah, the other best actors that year weren't, um, Yeah, I wouldn't say they were bad, but they weren't, I would, like, they aren't, you know, age-old historical. Um, it was Dexter Gordon for Round Midnight. Okay. Um, Bob Hoskins and Mona Lisa, William Hurt in Children of a Lesser God, and James Woods in Salvador. So and who nothing won? like groundbreaking, I don't and think. And Tom won. Yeah. I mean, Tom won. Newman won. Yeah. And yeah. you're right. I mean, and Salvador, I think, is an outstanding film and a performance. Some of the others I can't recall off the top of my head. But, you know, but that's what people thought. And I think, you know, there were a handful of films that... Um, that Newman maybe should have won for. And so maybe, people felt yeah, a little yeah. bit like, you know, he's he's a little bit older. Um, you know, people felt like he might have, for, you know, even as far back as 58 with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, 
Uh, you did have 61's The Hustler, 63's HUD, um, Cool Hand Luke, of course, in 67. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like he should have won for that, for example. The Sting. Um, so, handful of performances. Yeah, The Sting, and even some people may be Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. A little mm-hmm. bit less so for that, but you know, uh, he did receive a BAFTA for that. But... But yeah, so you know, a little, few people, a little bit of you know, thought that that was a makeup. But I mean, his performance is outstanding. We've talked a little bit about how he, you know, I mean, he's such a, I mean, he's probably one of the more handsome human beings who have ever yes. existed, and yeah, it's yeah. really would be easy for him to have traded on that exclusively. And it's he he really allowed himself to age, like you've discussed, and you know. He played a lot of roles where he was this old, cantankerous, cranky person. Nobody's Fool is a great example. That's even when he was considerably older in, in 94. Well, not considerably, less than a decade older. But I, he allowed himself to age, uh, and, and I really enjoy that about his performance. Tom Cruise is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Cruise is custom-made for this. Like, I feel like, you know, the cocky nature with which with which Cruz plays. I mean, I can just imagine. I don't know if this is true, but Cruz does such a good job that I could just see it as like Cruz is this like yeah. special charmed life, you know, and he's he's like great at what he does and he's never not been great at what he does. And, you know, it just shows the effortlessness with which he plays pool. Um, and, and I mean, the, 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 uh, werewolf of London scene is just so outstanding. I yeah. love, how, you know, yeah. how he uses his cue stick is, I mean, it's just great, dude. I love it. And he's, and he's somewhat similar to like, even just his, his cockiness really, it's interesting that he did this the same year as Top Gun. Cause there's definitely that aspect of the character in Top Gun. Like, you know, you got Maverick who's this cocky pilot. So, yeah. and he's great know, at what he does. I mean, that's yeah. Tom, Tom Cruise's thing, right? It's like, he's great at what he does. He's super confident, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a big chunk of what he does is that. And let's face it, he's great. But here, I mean, as we did hint at a little earlier, he allows himself to be goofy, though. He he allows himself to be over the top. I mean, you know, he's still cool, but mm-hmm. he's also, you can see the kind of ridiculousness. You can see the cheese factor. You can see, you know, when Newman is like, man, you're, you know, you are a character. And he's like, yeah. I didn't say you, ha- I didn't say you had character, buddy. I said, you are a character. Yes. We yeah, see yeah, yeah. that. And Cruz allows himself to be in that position, which I think is great. And Mary Elizabeth, and I'm like, boy, uh, Mastri Antonio, um, she, I think, is such a good... She's, like, clearly, maybe, you know, not clearly, but she seemed to me to be maybe a few years older. Clearly, she's more seasoned. Clearly, she's she's able to see a few moves ahead further than Cruz's character. And she does a fantastic job um, in mm-hmm. that role. And she's kind of in between. I mean, it's not a love triangle at all, but she's kind of in between uh, Fast Eddie and Tom Cruise and... She does a really fantastic job of of making this an interesting trifecta, an interesting triangle where Newman is having to kind of play her and Cruz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I love the way that that she kind of pl- uses her sexuality at, to kind of play with both of those characters. It's it's really quite great. And Forrest it's, Whitaker, yeah. dude. Forrest oh yeah, Whitaker. His, his, he's got one scene. And he's uh, oh, he's great. it's so good! Yeah. Oh, it's so. And it good. really, I think it's it's a wonderful scene too because that's, I'd say, also one of Newman's best scenes in the movie, if not, it's the so, best. I mean, it is outstanding. And I, so, yeah, it, if you want to see an extraordinary scene where with two actors just 
kicking some butt. Check mm-hmm. out Newman and Forrest Whitaker in this scene. It's like what in the latter latter like third yeah, it's of about the film. like I guess I would say that yeah the turning act into yeah. act three or so yeah. But you know Forrest Whitaker just does such an he is just he's so unique in this film and he, he he's it's amazing how he's able to play. There's a softness. There's like this real softness to him and like a vulnerability in a strange way. But there's but but underneath there is this like extremely intelligent cutthroat hustler but it's but there's like mixed in with this kind of like vulnerability and softness it's just really quite beautiful um and such a contrast to to newman um Mm -hmm. and just it's really wonderful but yeah i mean the performances are strong the music we haven't talked about that too much i i didn't you know really recall the music too much uh, except for like the Clapton song, which mm-hmm. you know was kind of a, a minor hit, I think, back then. But uh, Robbie Robertson from the band yeah. uh, does the score here, and it's like this really interesting, non-traditional kind of score. I think it's. Um, how did you find it? I, I felt like I it, liked it. Yeah, I, I it, do like Robert Rob, Robbie Robertson, and but it's not really similar to his. No, it's not like the band yeah. at all. Another yeah. another Toronto guy, but how he, would yeah. you even describe? Like, how would you, I'm trying to think of like what words I would use to describe the music. Um, uh, the score. What I mean, I, can you think of a way to describe I mean, it? I yeah. It's I can't really think of a genre. It's it's not like folksy. Isn't really it? Um, it's sort of like a, a, a like a soft. Even rock wouldn't really do. Yeah, it. it's like, not it's rock. Like, it's not it's, like eighties pop. It's not. No. I'm trying to think of. I'm not like a musician, like a musician or a music yeah, expert. There's, there's like some piano and. It's a you bit know. eccentric, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, and definitely. the vocal the vocalizations are kind of I mean it's not lyrics but there are vocalizations it's kind yeah. of like, um, but I felt like it was really effective. It kind of added to it kind of added a layer of kind of, you know, the unexpected or kind of interesting. And of course you've got it mixed in. I mean you know Scorsese notorious for use, using rock music in his um, in his uh, soundtracks and i think it's actually aged fairly well you've got i think a couple robert palmer tracks uh, older mm-hmm. tracks which i think are really good you know he's kind of he was the like uh, might as well face it you're addicted to love but he's kind of like a blue-eyed soul guy but this, i think these are older songs than that which I, I feel like still hold up i mean i'm not a huge eric clapton fan but i actually think his hit song from this holds up actually pretty well uh, mm-hmm. Warren Zevon, I mean, of course, Werewolves of London is is just outstanding, um, and of course, you know, Scorsese does a lot kinetically with these songs whenever whenever he uses them, yes, um, yeah. which is kind of his trademark. There are there are no Rolling Stones songs though, which no. is like surprising. Is <laughs> no doo-wop and no Rolling, Sh- Rolling Stones. I know, right? It's like how many films of Scorsese's can you watch that don't have either like doo-wop or Rolling Stones? There aren't yeah. many. <laughs> No, but I, I do like the soundtrack. I think it I think it fits really well. It never yeah never imposes on anything. It it just kind of is is there. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. I like Robbie Robertson. I think he's he's good. So and yeah. it's but it is totally different from the band. I thought yes. it was like yeah. Quite Don't unique. go into this expecting you know yeah. the band to be the the score for this. Yeah, yeah. But I I was really intrigued by it. And then and then we have the uh, the ending. Which, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, you and I talked about this briefly. I, I was surprised, you know, when I was kind of reading a little bit up on the film and kind of reorientating myself to, to kind of um, the context of the film and everything before we recorded this. I saw that quite a few people were confused, or at least it seemed, 
that quite a few people were kind of confused with the ending or, you know, they kind of didn't like it. They felt like it was kind of patched together or kind of missing something actually mm-hmm. was one of the biggest complaints that I heard, read about the film was that people felt like there was, it was almost as if the ending was missing a scene, you know, like mm-hmm. they didn't quite, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember, I feel like when I saw the film originally when I was younger, I, I probably didn't get all of the nuance of the relationship of Newman and Cruz and, you know, and what they were doing, but I probably didn't care either, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't recall, you know, watching it now, it, it seemed to make quite a bit of sense to me. And it's, and you said that you didn't have any issues with the no, ending. No, no. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't, I hadn't actually realized that people did have issues until you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, I mean, I feel like you've got this, it, and to me, this is an extremely interesting story and I'm kind of fascinated with stories about mentors and mentees and, you know, the, cause this is a really interesting relationship that occurs, you know, for all of us it, throughout our lives. We're sometimes mentors, we're sometimes teachers, and we're sometimes students and mentees. And this is an interesting, complex relationship. And the mm-hmm. roles can change at interesting times. And it's why it makes great fodder for films. And um, I think it's interesting here, too, that you, you've, I think it's a really beautiful arc. Um, and uh, you've kind of got Tom Cruise and Paul Newman basically changing places by the end yeah. of the film. Yeah. And that seemed pretty clear to me. Uh, um, so yeah, I, that's what's interesting is that it, again, it's it it makes to me complete structural sense. Yeah, um, like I, it doesn't I, seem to come out of nowhere. It's, yeah, it's, I, I I think to be even more specific, I you know the part that I that kept tripping people up as as far as like what I was reading was that you know uh, we hit, we're at the end of the film, uh, it's after the tournament, and we're in the green room. I think it is, and Newman's kind of setting up and and. Uh, Cruz comes busting in and he's like, you used me, you used me. And mm-hmm. people are like, I don't get it. What do you mean he used him? Um, and so that's where I think, and I don't know if maybe it's like a little bit of Cruz's performance where maybe it was just kind of over the top a little more than, mm-hmm. you know, and, knows, and yeah. that kind of threw people off. But but I feel like it made sense to me. I mean, I think that, you know. I mean, yeah, because it's, it's it, you think about it, They've hardly spoken until he or since he left them in that pool hall. Right, he abandoned them. Humiliated by so they've they've only spoken a few like maybe three words to each other, even just briefly meeting each other in the hallway. Yep. And then and then yeah, and then it's like of course Cruz would feel used because it's like oh you know you you walked out on us. Yeah, and now you said that you were gonna you were gonna be my mentor. You were going to teach me, and of course, what ends up really kind of happening. I mean, he did. He is like Newman definitely teaches him how to Mm -hmm. hustle, and of course, by the end of the film, you see that that Cruz is actually completely switched. I mean, Cruz is now the ruthless, effective hustler. He no longer plays the game for the game itself. He no longer plays it to be the best pool player. He's playing pool in order to hustle money from other people. So his orientation to the game has completely changed. And I mean, depending on your perspective on things, you could, you could say that he was corrupted. Uh, Mm -hmm. That would be one way to potentially look at it. It's kind of how I see it personally. And now Newman has gone from being the, the hustler and the person who only cared about money to only caring about playing, being the best pool player he can be. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. But uh, but I think Cruz kind of sees that, you know, what it ended up happening was that Newman, he feels like Newman used him to get back into the game. So yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. you didn't actually you, you weren't trying to do anything for me at all, ever. You were just trying to get back into the game. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's how I interpret it. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's how I kind of felt about it. But I just thought it was mm. interesting um, mm-hmm. that there was because, you know, sometimes in these films where there's kind of role reversals, kind of con stories, hustler stories, that stuff can kind of get uh, plots could get confused. But I felt like this was like very straightforward and very effective. So mm-hmm. no, definitely. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I think unless you've got anything else that you'd like to bring up about the film. No, I think, I think we've, we've covered plenty. Yeah. We, we've touched on, you know, like, I mean, obviously you could talk about a film forever, but, you know, that'd be crazy if we had, you know, our, our memory cards only have so many hours. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yes, yeah. but but uh, but it was a pleasure, man. Uh, this is one of my favorites from way back when I was a kid. I'm glad that you enjoyed it, too. It's always fun to it's always fun when I get to pick a film that you haven't seen yet uh that's a joy to me so yeah i i'm i'm happy that you enjoyed it i enjoyed our conversation i hope everybody out there i hope you enjoyed it as well if you if you haven't seen this film go see it uh it'd be crazy it'd be weird if you'd listened to this whole thing and you hadn't seen the film maybe maybe you did that i don't know and we spoiled the whole thing for you we spoiled you're watching it while we talk about it (laughs) (laughs) like a commentary track we should do like a commentary track sometime we will have to think of something fun for our 50th episode we're uh, we're, i'm gonna hold us to that we're gonna have to do that um we'll think of something fun but in the meantime (laughs) everybody have a wonderful couple weeks we look forward to uh coming back together and recording another episode for you soon and uh until then everybody take care yeah bye-bye